Okay, we will be continuing our series of studies through the letters of John. This evening we're going to begin uh, the third and final letter, Third John. And uh, just a couple of, of points uh, before we get started. I want to remind us that some of the main points that John made in First John, which is the, the longest of the three letters... He revisited in both 2nd and 3rd John. These are three separate letters, but they do have a common thread that goes through them. And that common thread is the true nature of the Lord Jesus Christ and the importance to the church of identifying, understanding, and of embracing that true nature. So 2nd and 3rd John do contain elements of, of reiteration and repetition. And of course, John had purpose in this repetition. But even more important than that, the Lord has purpose. You see, each time we, we return to a previous point and revisit it, we look at it from at least a, a slightly different perspective. And the, the end result is that we gain greater understanding of each of those points. We'll better understand the importance that the Lord places on them. Revisiting points like this also helps us not to forget, not to lose sight of these specific points that the Lord finds very important, repetition in his word. So what I'm saying here is as we proceed through this last of the apostles' three letters, please don't view these studies as throwaway studies because we might be touching on points that we've already looked at. Don't look at them as unnecessary repetition or, or of being irrelevant because you've heard it before. What I'm asking you to do here is please don't mentally check out. Hang in there. This is a, this is a wonderful, wonderful book. It's a short letter, but it's packed full of, of rich, rich things that we, can, that we can gain from it. So the main theme of 3 John is this, that participating in the work of those who are true ministers of the Lord Jesus is a display. It's evidence of a genuine and faithful relationship with the Lord Jesus. Specifically in this letter, we're going to be looking at what we know as Christian hospitality. That is meeting the specific needs of those who do the work of the Lord and this is pleasing to the Lord. And it's also an encouragement to other believers around us. Now, by definition, this participation in the work of those who are true ministers of the Lord Jesus, it's always rooted in sound doctrine. Let me spend just a moment here and, and, and answer the question, what defines a true minister of the Lord Jesus? Because many claim to be. Well, I think that it's one who is doing the Lord's work, not his own. 
It's one who is doing work to which the Lord has assigned, directed, and gifted him to do. Not merely what he wants to do, and it looks like something Christian. Now, we learned back in 2 John that we are not to participate in the work of those who John identified as false teachers of God's word. That is, those who proclaim, who teach, and who influence the church in doctrines that are contrary to the truth of God's word. We're not to participate in that. Now, here in 3 John, what we're going to see is the importance and the value of participating in the work of those who proclaim, teach, and influence the church in ways that are consistent with the truth of God's word. It's a contrast. The third John is, it is a personal letter, and it revolves around three individuals within one of the churches to whom John wrote and distributed all of his letters. The words that John wrote in this letter, in 3 John, had particular meaning to, his, to, the, to their recipient, to, to the one who John wrote these words to. But remember that they also carry true value for believers everywhere who have and ever will read them. They have value to you and to me. Now, the recipient of 3 John was a man by the name of Gaius. And Gaius is the focal point of our first study tonight. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 4. So if you want to join me there, let's read those first four verses, and then we will get into a verse-by-verse description. So 3 John, verses 1 through 4. It says, the elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking In the truth, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Amen. So let's look at verse one. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Now here, as in 2 John, John identifies himself as the elder. I think we all understand this, but it's worth saying he's not identifying himself as an old man. Although he was elderly when he wrote this letter, that's not his point here. This is a reference to a position within the wider body of Christ by which his reader, Gaius, clearly knew him. John was an apostle, an elder, not not an elder in the local church to which he's writing, but an elder recognized throughout the wider body of Christ at the time as holding God's authority delegated to him as an apostle. 
This is how John was recognized. Now, unlike 2 John, this letter is addressed to a specific named individual, Gaius. Now, who exactly this man was is the topic of some, I'll say some minor disagreement among commentators and Bible teachers. And this is why. The name Gaius appears in four other passages throughout the the New Testament. Whether this Gaius here in 3 John, John is the same man mentioned in any of these other passages is unclear. And that is because there's nothing in Scripture that specifically connects them. Okay? But some, and this is where the, 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 the controversy comes in, some do speculate about it and try to connect him as being one of these other men with his name. I choose not to speculate. And I'm going to give you three of my reasons why. What I do, what I choose to do is to leave Gaius unidentified beyond what we're told about him in 3 John. Here's my reasoning. First, it's impossible to positively identify him as being one of these other mentions of his name. There's just no way to positively identify him that way. Second, that name, Gaius, at the time in the Roman Empire, is a very common name, a very common name. So the idea that there could have been five different men mentioned in the New Testament, all with the name of Gaius, it's not a stretch at all. It's a very common name. My third reason, and this is, to me, probably the most important, is that his precise identification, that is, anything beyond what we're told in 3 John, just simply has no impact or bearing on the meaning or on the understanding of the message that is contained in 3 John. So to me, It's just a waste of our time to dig any further into it. So what I want to do is look at what we know for sure about Gaius. And that is what can be gleaned from John's letter. What is that? Well, first off, John knew him and John knew him well. John also had strong affection, that is brotherly love for him. I mean, look at this. In the first verse... Just this one verse, the first line of the letter. Twice John expresses his love for Gaius. He addresses him to the beloved Gaius. Beloved by who? Well, by John. To the beloved Gaius, whom I love. One line, he expresses this love for him twice. So we know that John had this brotherly love for him. And then also I want you to take a look at what John says about his love for Gaius. He says, whom I love in truth. Here John is defining or explaining that in which his love is based or rooted. That is the truth, the truth of the gospel, that which they have known from the beginning. See, the love that John has for Gaius is not a 
natural love that was based upon common interests or personality traits, anything like like that that would naturally draw people together. The love that John had for Gaius is what we know as agape love. And throughout this series of studies, first, second, now third John, we've looked at and studied this concept or this principle of agape love. We've looked at it a lot. This is the love that took the Lord Jesus to the cross. This is the love which Jesus had for each one of us. And he had this love for each one of us when we were still sinners, when we were at enmity with him, when we hated him. He loved us with this agape love. So John loves Gaius not because of any natural personality traits or common interests that he and Gaius might might have or might share together. Not because of anything about Gaius that might draw the two of them together in a natural or earthly sense. But he loves him because of the bond between them that was forged by the Lord Jesus on the cross. That's the love with which John loved Gaius. The basis of their relationship was their mutual commitment to their shared belief in the Lord Jesus. You see, Jesus died for John, and Jesus died for Gaius. That love that took the Lord to the cross for each of them is the love that John has for Gaius, that they have for one another. It's the love that bonds each one of us together as true believers. That love that was forged by the Lord on the cross. The love that all true believers have for one another. Let's take a look at verse 2. He says, Beloved, again, Now we're just right into the second verse, and again he's expressing this love for him. He's addressing Gaius. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you, and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. Now there are some within what I'm just going to call the modern Christian culture, those who hold to what is known as the prosperity gospel. There there are some that that see this verse not as an actual prayer. It's used as one of their proof texts for their false doctrine. They view it as not as a prayer, but as a blueprint of what God desires for his people. And this view comes from a misinterpretation and a a misunderstanding, a misapplication of the wording in the King James translation. I want to read this to you. Now, what I read first was from the ESV. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you 
and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. Now, let me read it to you from the, the King James and real briefly explain the misapplication of this reading. King James says, Beloved, I wish above all things that thou mayest prosper and be in good health, even as thy soul prospereth. Now, the way they view this, and it's just a little bit easier for them to see it this way with, with this reading from King James, but they see this verse as John describing, and they acknowledge this is under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, which it is, but they see this as John describing what he desires most out of anything for those who are truly born again. And since it was written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they believe and hold to this as a doctrine that this is what God desires for his people above all things. Now, God desires a lot of things for his people, right? And and what they proclaim is that above anything else, above all the things that God desires for his people, this is what he desires, that they would physically, materialistically, and this is what it really comes down to, financially prosper, that they would be rich, that they would be wealthy. That's what God wants more than anything else for his people. And that they would always, under any circumstance, that they would always be physically healthy and free from any type of illness or infirmity. Now, I'll stop there with my description. I'm just going to say, and and I think that we in this room are hopefully all in agreement on this. This is just a complete misinterpretation and misapplication of this verse. That's not at all what this verse says or what John, what John is saying. This verse is an actual prayer that John prays for Gaius. Now, let's look at this prayer, okay? Because he prays for him, John prays for Gaius in two key areas of his life. One, he prays that he would fare well, that he would prosper in all of his endeavors. Now, this phrase, that all may go well with you, it literally means in the original language that you may have a good journey. So metaphorically, it carries the the meaning of success and prosperity on the path that you are currently walking. Okay? And then the second thing is that he, John is praying that, that Gaius would experience good health. Now, that phrase, to be in good health, it translates what was originally a medical term that means to be physically fit, healthy, and free from any illness. So that is what John is praying for Gaius. We're going to develop this a little bit, okay? First off, this was customary in letter writing of the day. A wish 
for good health and prosperity. Okay? For you um, fellow Star Trek fans, it's the equivalent of the, the Vulcan greeting, live long and prosper. Okay? But this prayer that John offers, this is more, this is much more than a than merely a gratuitous wishing you well from John. This was not just thrown in by John because that's what was socially acceptable to do in the day. It's much more than that. First of all, there is an original language nuance that I want to explain that's very easy to miss. In the original Greek, when John says, I pray, he uses a present tense verb. And what that means, it, it, it indicates that he regularly, continuously, and repeatedly prays this for Gaius. It's, I, I, I don't think that I'm exaggerating in any way when I say it probably means that he prayed this for Gaius pretty much every day. See, this is not a one-time prayer. This was not localized to the letter, to the letter that, that, uh, that John wrote. He's not saying to Gaius that I prayed this for you one time, or I'm praying this for you right now. He's communicating to him that this is what I pray for you all the time, on a regular basis. And then the other thing I want to point out is, notice how John links this prayer for good health and prosperity to Gaius's spiritual condition. In other words, his relationship to the Lord. He says, as it goes well with your soul. That little word, as, it's a conjunction or a connector word. The literal meaning is just as, or to the degree that, or since, or because. So we could read, we could read it in this way. John is saying, in the same way your soul is doing so well, I pray your physical life and circumstances will go well. Or I pray that your life circumstances and health are and will continue to be as well as I know your soul is. You see, he's connecting those together. So this prayer is definitely meaningful and it's definitely from the heart. It is anything but gratuitous. Now, I see this prayer. In fact, I see all of the prayers that the Lord has chosen to record in his word as special blessings to us. Uh, I think that they are windows for us to see into the heart of the one praying. This can so often be an encouragement and a reminder for us to be people of prayer, of intercessory prayer. That is, to be people who pray for one another. Now, although this particular prayer here in 3 John is not 
explicitly instruction to us on how to pray. Like I said, it is, it's an actual prayer. But if we look closely, I believe that there's much that we can learn from John's prayer. Much that we can learn about praying for one another. So what I want to do here is I want to highlight three areas that I see of praying for one another that I believe we can draw from and benefit from John's prayer for Gaius. Okay, the first one is this, praying for one another in a general sense. Now, even though John and Gaius are not in close proximity geographically, they clearly had a spiritual connection. Right? They were, they were separated. They weren't always together reminding one another of each other. But they had this spiritual connection. They are brothers in the Lord, quite possibly through John's ministry. Just for a moment, look down in verse 4, where he says, John says, and again, he's, he's writing to and addressing Gaius here, he says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. This was a very common phrase that John used referring to those who came to, the, who came to know the Lord through his ministry. So they're definitely brothers in the Lord. Like I said, quite possibly, most likely through John's ministry. They're also fellow servants. Fellow servants to the Lord, fellow servants in serving the church. And John, John takes this opportunity to remind Gaius that he prays for him on a regular basis. Just think about it. What a blessing it must have been for Gaius to read these words, to know that the apostle was praying for him, was praying for his circumstances and his health on a regular basis. I mean, just think about that. Wouldn't that be encouraging to you to know that someone in John's position was praying for you on a regular basis? No, it's, a, uh, it's a true expression of agape love. Like I said, I know we've, we've, we've studied it so much through this, this series, agape love. It's the love that originates from God. It's the very nature of God. John is loving Gaius by praying for him on a regular basis. He's loving him the way Jesus loves us. Think about it like this. John prayed for Gaius on a regular basis in the same way that the Lord Jesus intercedes for us on a regular basis. How encouraging is that? This demonstrated to Gaius and should remind us that the Lord never forgets about us. Okay, we are not physically by his side in heaven. We're, we, could, we could say it like this. We're geographically separated from Jesus in heaven. But he's always interceding for us. What a blessing and what a reminder. 
also serves as a reminder to us to be praying on a regular basis for those fellow believers with whom God has connected us. We can't pray for every single person in the world every day, right? We can't pray for every single believer in the world every day. But we can pray for those whom God has connected us on a regular basis. Even those whom we're not in close geographic proximity. You know, I think about, I think about the little lights in India. I think about all of the, the pastors and, and, and the brothers and sisters in Africa. You know, we have a spiritual connection with them, even though we've never even, most of us anyway, have never even met them. But we can be praying for them. Number two. Praying for one another linked to a spiritual condition of being in right, good, and healthy relationship with the Lord. Now, John established in the opening of the letter that Gaius is walking in the truth. In other words, that he is in a true, solid, ongoing, and growing relationship with the Lord. And we'll, we'll be developing that a little bit more in the next, the next couple of verses. Now, we know from, from history and for most of us, um, from our own personal experiences, that being in right relationship with the Lord and serving Him faithfully does not guarantee us a trouble-free existence and good health, right? There's, you can be in good relationship with the Lord, good, healthy relationship with the Lord. You're not guaranteed trouble-free, a trouble-free life and good health. So John may very well have been asking the Lord to cause all to go well with Gaius and to give him good health because he is a faithful Servant. I think that's a good and healthy way of praying for one another. Let me read to you from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. The Apostle Paul here says, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, for this reason, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I think it's a good and healthy way of praying for one another. I will often pray that the Lord will bless someone who I know is a true and faithful servant of the Lord who sacrifices for the work of the kingdom. Number three, praying for one another in the context of kingdom work. Now, this is not explicit in John's prayer. But I do believe that the link John makes between his prayer for Gaius and Gaius's spiritual condition allows for this. John's desire for Gaius is that he would be free from the the turmoil of difficulties and adversities of life 
and the pain, discomfort, and even debilitation of illness, so as to be unrestricted and undistracted in his service to the Lord and the church. It's not exactly the same, but it's similar to when we pray for Pastor Tim and Jay when they go to Africa. They are there doing the Lord's work. And we're at home praying that the Lord would give them an extra measure of grace in the area of their circumstances and their health so that they could apply all of their concentration, all of their effort, all of their energy, all of their strength to the work that the Lord has given them to do. It's no guarantee, but it's certainly a good and healthy prayer. I think that we should always be praying similarly for one another, that we would be prosperous, that we would be fulfilled and satisfied in all we do for kingdom purposes, that we would find success, that we would find true joy, fulfillment, and satisfaction in the work that we do for the Lord and for his kingdom. Praise God. Okay, let's move on to verses 3 and 4. I want to look at these together. Verses 3 and 4. He says, For for I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Okay, so here I, I, like in verse 2, I want to begin by addressing a current and growing misapplication of John's phrase, your truth. This phrase is, it's growing in popularity within our culture at large, for sure. And unfortunately, even within the modern Christian culture. Many are taking this phrase to mean that truth is not objective, but that it is actually subjective. Changes. It can be different from person to person, from time to time. They take it as that that truth is determined, what's true and what's not true, is determined not by God, but by each individual, as that individual sees fit. That my truth might very well be truth for me, but it's not necessarily truth for you. And again, I'm not going to go any deeper into this, but this, of course, it's wrong. It's just simply wrong. And it's actually the very opposite of what John is saying. John's point here is that that he, the brothers, and all of the saints see in Gaius that Gaius is so committed to God's truth, to objective truth, that he is now actually, Gaius is, is actually now identified with truth, God's truth, 
that Gaius is now so closely connected to and, and his life is so intertwined with God's objective truth that it is actually now identified as Gaius's truth. God's truth is Gaius's truth. And that is how Gaius is now identified. This is a, this is a characteristic and an identification that we should all desire and strive for. Okay, with that understanding, now let's look at the passage. He begins <clears throat> with another connector word. He says, for, for I rejoice greatly. I want to look at that word for just a, mo- a moment. It's a connector word. It's connecting what he said in verses 1 and 2 with what he's about to say in verses 3 and 4. It's used as a, as a marker of cause or reason for something. Literal meaning is because. So John, John has told Gaius in no uncertain terms that he loves him deeply, that he has great admiration for him, respect for him, and that he desires only the absolute best for him. Now, in verses 3 and 4, he tells Gaius and us why he feels this way. He reveals the basis of his love for Gaius and the reason he feels such joy in Gaius. John's reference to, I've already stated this, but I just want to reiterate here, his reference to my children hints that there is at very least the possibility, and I'm going to say really the high probability, that Gaius came to know the Lord directly through John's ministry. So notice that John's feelings towards Gaius, his love for him, is not based on natural, common interests, like-mindedness in in political or social ideologies, common likes and dislikes, anything that might draw the two of them together in a natural or an earthly sense. And as we develop these verses, I want you to, to pay attention and notice that John's love for Gaius is based on their mutual knowledge of the Lord their mutual love for the Lord, their mutual commitment to their shared belief in the Lord, and their shared relationship that each one of them have in the Lord. They are brothers in the Lord. The two of them are brothers in the Lord. They are also brothers of the Lord's. Let me read to you Romans 8, 29. Romans 8, 29 says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he, the Lord Jesus, might be the firstborn among brothers. They have this connection in and through and with the Lord Jesus. So the love that John has for Gaius is a spiritual love. 
It's a brotherly love. It is agape. Now, let's take a look at John's mention of the brothers who came and testified. He mentions these brothers here in verse 3, and then again in verse 5, which we'll look at in our next study. Their names and their exact number are not given, but they are clearly trustworthy believers who travel between John's location and at least, at very least, the church where Gaius resides. Possibly, and I'm going to say again, most likely, not just that one church, but the series of churches to whom John writes. That's not specified, but I think it's clearly implied. Now, although their precise identity is not known, but taken within the context of the entire letter, they were most likely Christian workers who went out on preaching and teaching missions and then would bring reports back to John of the various churches they visited. And another little original uh, language nuance here, the word that John uses here, came, it translates a present tense Greek verb, which means or it speaks of continuous or ongoing action. So this would indicate that John is referring to a pattern of these brothers going out on missions, then coming back and giving John a report. Going back out on missions, coming back. It's, it's something that's happening on a, on a regular basis. So I'm convinced that is who these brothers were. Teachers and preachers who traveled among the various churches and then came back and reported to John. Now John speaks in these verses of the joy that he feels. And throughout all three of his letters, he refers to this joy that he feels, this joy that he experiences in hearing about the faithfulness of the true believers in the churches that he wrote to. That word, the word that he uses, joy, it means to delight in, to be glad, to be exceedingly happy. It's used to describe that which is your greatest source of happiness and contentment. Not just a source, but the greatest source of happiness and contentment. His joy in each of these cases is driven by his knowledge that these believers, these brothers and sisters, know Jesus, that they believe what he teaches and are committed to living their lives in a way that reflects that. He links this spiritual joy that he feels with doctrinal truth in an inseparable way. This joy, this this true spiritual joy, as we've studied before, is only experienced when we are in right relationship to God's truth. It thrives in God's truth. It grows, it deepens, it spreads by design 
in God's truth. In fact, it is so reliant upon and inseparable from God's truth that it literally cannot exist or survive outside of it, outside of God's truth and that relationship with the Lord. This joy just doesn't, cannot exist. There is no joy, not the joy that John is describing here, in error, in falsehood, or in deception. And it's those things, error, falsehood, and deception, was the very danger that the church, the churches were facing. John experienced this joy in knowing Gaius because Gaius was the antithesis. That is the exact opposite of the false believers who were attacking the church. Gaius was walking in the truth. The point that we're meant to see here is that the joy of true Christian fellowship can only be experienced in an environment where there is shared knowledge of, understanding of, and commitment to the truth, the objective truth, God's truth, truth that doesn't change, truth that isn't fluid, God's truth. John experienced this joy because he was confident that Gaius knew God's truth, that he understood God's truth, and that he was firmly committed to that truth. This joy is an expression of John's pastoral care and concern and love for his children in the Lord. It's the same joy that a, that a good parent experiences when he sees his own children walking in true relationship with the Lord. I can speak to that personally. I can speak to that personally for all of my children. Praise God for that. But I experienced this joy very recently in seeing my son Sam and Taryn get married. Knowing that they each know, love, and serve the Lord with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. Knowing that they had walked the very, very difficult path, especially in our current culture, that very difficult path of purity and faithfulness to the Lord leading up to their marriage. Confident that that faithfulness, their relationship with the Lord, will carry them into a fruitful marriage and a fruitful life. Knowing that they know God's truth, that they understand God's truth, and are firmly committed to God's truth, knowing that they are walking in the truth, gave me, gives me that joy. Praise God. John emphasizes his point in verse 4 by reiterating that his joy is not just joy, but it's his greatest joy. Anything less, 
is incomplete. Now, I want to look at this phrase, walking in the truth. The source of John's joy regarding Gaius is that he is walking in the truth. Now, in our next study, we're going to be developing the specific expressions or actions of Gaius that were reported to John. But I want to look right now at uh, uh, John's description of walking in the truth, which he mentions twice in this passage. I think it's worthy of spending a moment to develop this. Walking in the truth means that John is confident that Gaius is in an ongoing, continual pattern of living a spiritually healthy life, and that he will continue to do so. See, the word walk means to advance along a given path. It indicates empirical, that is, observable spiritual progress in life. For Gaius, he began the path of righteous living when he was was born again, when he was first born again. And the point here is that he's not veered off that path. He's still on it. And it's important to understand that for Gaius, and really for anyone who is walking in the truth, you see, it's not a matter of maintaining a spiritual status quo of, of staying at the same spiritual level as when he was first born again. It's not a matter of merely refraining from evil, refraining from sin, but it means an actual and ongoing spiritual advancement, growth in the Lord. Day by day. It's the very essence of sanctification. Every day of our walk, every single day, becoming more like the Lord Jesus and less like the old man who we used to be. (coughs) To walk in the truth means to walk in accordance with the truth of the message of the gospel. God's objective truth. It indicates that truth is both what we believe, that is what we profess, and how we live. And it's by by this very principle and standard that we should always evaluate ourselves. We should be asking ourselves on a regular basis, am I living that is outwardly expressing for others to observe what I profess to believe. This this principle is at the heart of all of the tests that we studied uh, going through 1 John. There There are many aspects of the Christian walk that can and do differ for each believer, right? Things like, this is by no means an exhaustive list. I just, I just put down a couple things. Like, what local church you belong to. Uh, what mode of baptism you hold to. How often you take the Lord's Supper. Okay, this can differ from believer to believer. 
But when it comes to the essential doctrines of the Christian faith, there is no variance among true believers. These essentials are absolute. They're unchanging. They are objective. They are what define us as true Christians. And they are what define walking in the truth. Now, just by way of reminder, these actions that I'm describing, our actions do not cause, they do not result in a true relationship with Jesus. That's works. But they are the empirical, the observable evidence of a true relationship with Jesus. This is what John is hearing about Gaius. And this is his greatest joy. Praise God. So, in wrapping up, this passage should be a reminder to us all. Where do we find our greatest joy in life? Don't let yourself become entangled in the things or the pleasures of the world. And they are many. The world has many, many pleasures. And the world tempts us with these pleasures. The world tempts us with promises of this joy. New cars, big houses, exotic trips, sensual experiences. And I'm not talking about merely or only sexual experiences, but anything dealing with our senses. And again, they are many. Uh, The world promises to fulfill us and give us this joy through these things. These promises are empty in that they never truly fulfill. They always end up leaving us wanting more. More, more, more. Most importantly, they distract us from that which is truly fulfilling. That which is truly valuable. That which is truly important. The very reason and purpose for which we have been saved. Serving God. Advancing His kingdom. And encouraging those who are doing the same. This is walking in truth. A life filled with walking in truth leads us to true fulfillment every day and eternal rewards to look forward to. Not empty promises, leaving us constantly wanting more than we have. One last thing should remind us to pray for those faithful believers with whom God has connected us. This isn't meant to be self-serving, but our own elders and deacons in this church should be praying for them. All of the saints here at Tree of Life Christian Church, the brothers and sisters in Africa with whom God has connected us through the work that Tim and Jay do over there, or any other believer whom God has connected us with. Praise God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your faithful servant, John. 
Thank you for all that you recorded for us throughout his ministry. And thank you for tonight's study. I pray that you will please help us to reflect upon all you have opened our eyes to tonight. Help us not to forget that which we have learned. And please, Father, give us the grace to apply it in our lives every day. Amen.